This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now. After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash now for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Krishna Das Pilgrim Heart Hour. In this podcast, Krishna Das shares his warm-hearted and down-to-earth path to the divine. If you are interested in supporting Krishna Das's podcast, please go to beherenownetwork.com/kd. Jugovendam, 
There's so much love in this room and presence and beautiful, grateful cherishment. Just getting together in the spirit, it's so, it's so marvelous, really. And fun, but deep fun, not just superficial fun. Deep fun. J. 
joy. Which is one of the virtues we cultivate in our dharma, in our spiritual path. Joy. And rejoicing in the joy of others as well. Sympathetic joy. Krishnadas and I were talking about what uh, Tibetan chant we might do that we both practice and think about. And he being incredibly and always devoted to his guru and to staying close to the guru and calling the guru and merging with the guru and beyond separateness. He said, let's talk about guru yoga and devotion and chant. Lama Keno, calling the Lama from afar, Lama Keno. It's a beautiful poetic genre, almost unique, not really, but to Tibetan Buddhism, called calling the master, the guru, the teacher, the benefactor from afar, as if they're afar. So it's a way that we reach out and we ask for help. We lower, we humble ourselves, we admit vulnerability, and we cultivate receptivity and transparency. We ask for help. We call the guru, the teacher, the benefactor, the higher power, the inner power, the deeper power, however you look at it. All of these are just words. Words are such weak translations of the inexpressible reality. We could call it praying to God as if from afar until we merge and realize inseparability from that. Or however else we want to look at it. In Tibetan yoga, which really means union, in Tibetan, we parse it as union with the natural state. Now it's something outside ourselves. So that's how we practice a certain kind of meditation or unmeditation, non-meditation, just being inseparable <coughs> from the light in everyone and everything. So we're going to chant Lama Cheno, calling the Lama from afar. Easy to remember, Lama Cheno. Lama means your archetype, your icon, whatever you conceive of it, whatever name you put on it. As if from afar is my translation. Calling the Lama as if in parentheses from afar. Praying to God as if from afar. Like calling to one's parent when you're a baby with the certainty that they hear you, that they come, that they're there. That's the way we cultivate this gratitude and remembrance to our benefactors, our spiritual benefactors, our teachers, because we sit in the laps of giants, as they say. So much to be grateful for has come down to us from the past, reminding us of that which can come out from within the lotus blossoming in the mud, let's say, of our human animal nature, the lotus of spiritual unfoldment, blossoming in the mud of our animal nature and giving birth to the divine, or the Buddha nature, as we call it in Buddhism, the divine nature. It says in the wisdom scriptures of ancient India, the Upanishad, that Brahma, Atma, and Brahma, Guru, and Atma are one. That God, the teacher, or the benefactor, the mentor, and the practitioner of secret pilgrim are one. This is a very profound thought, not just to believe in, but to, to consider what's keeping us from that oneness. So we consider the teacher or the guru, the mentor, as a doorway to that which is beyond. They call it God, usually in India. 
In Tibetan Buddhism, the guru and guru yoga is very important. Devotion helps us go beyond ourselves, beyond our ego. So we cultivate it and practice it a lot. Also, we're very grateful to our masters who have done so much in preserving and passing on this ancient, timeless wisdom to us today. Tools and techniques for finding out who and what we are and what we need and how to experience it and how to go beyond need and experience the fullness, wholeness, and contentment that is true wealth. Contentment, the greatest form of wealth. So we're going to chant Lama Cheno, join in, if and when you like. We'll just hum along as we call it, your it, not ours, as if from afar. And we'll be calling our guru as if from afar. And he never has been afar, alive, or dead, or even before we knew him, as we say. We thought we were looking for him, but actually he was looking for us. Lama Cheno. Heed us, hear us, Lama Cheno. Look at us, turn this way, Cheno. Calling him or her as if from afar, it as if from afar. One and inseparable. Opening the heart, illuminating the mind, nourishing, nurturing the soul. Together, weditation, not meditation. with KD and the holy pilgrims of the heart.
Janja Sancha Grimbuche Makye Panam Gyeche Nyebanyampa Mepaya Kane Kandu Bawasho May the precious seed of enlightenment to Bodhicitta be planted and grow where it has not yet arisen. And where it has arisen, this noble mind, this good heart, this altruistic compassion and action, bodhicitta, where it has arisen, may it grow, blossom, bloom, illumine the entire universe for the boundless benefit of one and all. And may we all together complete the spiritual journey. One sangha, one satsang, one family, beloved community, one family. This is one of the three favorite prayers of His Holiness, the Dalai Lama. extraordinary beings who came to my mind. Uh, there were many, and I feel like I've had the most blessed of lives, um, really. And uh, one person who came very strongly was Nershal Ken Rinpoche, whom I met because of Suryadas. Um, I had read some of his writings, which were really pretty hard to find. There wasn't really... They weren't really well known, and, and I just had that feeling inside, you know, like, oh, he could mean something to me. And then I went, I can't remember exactly what year it was even. What year was the coup attempt against Gorbachev? <laughs> anyway, I was there in, in uh, what was then the Soviet Union, becoming Russia, and... Uh, my friend Joseph Goldstein and I arrived to lead a retreat on the eve of the coup attempt uh, in, in uh, Russia. And so, of course, our retreat got canceled and um, all our plans changed. I remember Joseph left his entire chocolate stash to the people at the barricades. <laughs> and uh, we came back to the States and then... Uh, just like there was a lot of disruption to our plan. So I ended up in Paris, not quite at the time I was expecting to be in Paris, and I heard Suridas was there. So I contacted him, and he said, oh, you know who's here? My teacher, Nyosha Ken Rinpoche, would you like to meet him? And uh, I went to meet him. He was staying, uh, I guess it's Sogyo Rinpoche's place, and it was like uh, this gorgeous place. And, and I walked into the room, and there was this, Tibetan Lama with all these school children like piling on him and he was playing. <laughs> and it was just one of those moments when it's like the things we know before we hear them. It was like, oh right. He is like this huge, huge, huge person for me in my life. And and that continued on. And uh I have also great memories of being with him with Krishnadas. Um uh, I heard that he was uh Kempo, as he was called, was in Paris. And um, maybe I'll leave it to Suryadas to kind of describe him 
and what he was like, but I heard that he was in Paris. So my friends and I here got really excited, like, oh, we're going to go see him, and it's Paris. And, you know, we're going to go to cafes, and we're going to, like, have this totally elegant, beautiful Parisian experience and also get to see him. So we went, and uh, Krishnadas was in Europe anyway. We were, like, making plans to, to get together. And, and then uh, Kempo said one day, I have a really big surprise for you. We're going to go to, like, this freezing cold monastery in Normandy. <laughs> The likes of which you've spent half your life in. <laughs> We're leaving Paris. So it was like, okay. So we went to Normandy to La Magherme's monastery, as it turns out, and we chopped vegetables, and we had to buy sleeping bags and towels and things like that because it was like the places we'd spent half our life in. Um, but Kempo was there, and it, it was just the most beautiful kind of experience of him in... Uh, uh, well, I don't know if there was ever a formal setting <laughs> with him, but um, it was really just kind of getting to be with him. I don't know, how would you describe him even? You're doing a good job. I don't it's know. Very it's fresh, like... beginner's mind. I'm enjoying it. He was very uh, free and joyous. Free and joyous. Sogyo Rinpoche said, who became one of his disciples around then, that's 25 years ago, you're talking about early 90s, Sogyo Rinpoche, author of Tibetan Book of Living and Dying, said, Kempo embodies a like, um, joyous presence or sacred awe. And you don't know if it's him or it's just what you're feeling, but it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because there's no difference in that moment. There's no mm -hmm. difference in what he's doing or what you're doing or feeling. So he was an awesome master. He was a teacher of the Dalai Lama of Dzogchen and other things. And he became a teacher of all of us and Yuvipassana teachers, mm -hmm. et cetera, of Dzogchen. Mm -hmm. I just, I'll never forget that moment. I have a big surprise for you. <laughs> <laughs> but Paris. <laughs> <laughs> is receding into the distance. <laughs> I have to buy a sleeping bag. <laughs> I remember I asked him if I could sing for him, you know? So I was sitting right... He was sitting on the floor, on a, on a bed kind of on the floor, and we were sitting around him on the floor. So I asked him if I could sing something, and this was a chant. I forget which one it was. Maybe it was a Guru Puja, which I did every day, you know, for the last 350 lifetimes. So I opened my mouth and I started to sing and I sang the first verse. And when I finished, my mind went completely blank. I just sat in front of him and I went. And he looked at me, he cracked up and he said, is that all? <laughs> just boom, right? It was. A... <laughs> Not sure if it ever came back. <laughs> comes to mind the Paris story when I happened to be translating for him and traveling around a little bit with him in Europe and Bhutan and Nepal and Tibet. So in Paris in the early mid-90s, he didn't speak Western languages. He was an old Tibetan Lama who escaped in 1959 and was a refugee in India. So, but he was very uh, highly educated and brilliant intellectually as well as spiritually accomplished. And one day we were on the metro, the subway, the and um, 
the tube, as some people call it. And he said to me in Tibetan, I, I, didn't, I didn't know who he was looking at because I wasn't paying that much attention to him at that moment. I was just there with him standing up. And he was looking at somebody and he said, if I could only say a few words to those people, they would wake up right now. Wow. Which was his intention or his like long-term aspiration always to not just help but to edify, enlighten, awaken, point out the nature of reality to people, however you want to call it. Of course, help them. On the other hand, more funny, another time I was in one of these situations with him. So it was never my, I, I love the beach and water sports and the beach. And I just came back from visiting Ramdas in Hawaii and the beach. <laughs> and so, but it would never occur to me to invite llamas to the beach because I know Tibetans. They don't want to swim. It's frozen Tibet. They don't want to take their clothes off. They've been monks their whole lives, even if they're not monks anymore. They just don't get lying on the beach and, and tanning and, and all that. <laughs> water sports. Like, why? What's with the skiing? I know it's not a water sport. Skiing? Why? We have so much snow. We wish there was no snow where we come from. So to make a long story short, we, a group went to the beach near Bordeaux when we lived in southern France and Dordogne for most of the 80s together in a retreat monastery. And there was a break after a few years. And we went to the beach. Somebody probably took us. And Campo said, maybe I should get up on that chair, you know, lifeguard chair. Anybody been to the beach lately? Lifeguard chair, which he had really never seen, having never gone to the beach in his 50 or 60-year Himalayan life. Maybe I should get up on that chair and explain to everybody, you can translate, why they're wasting their time lying there like that naked. <laughs> and when they get bored, turning over. <laughs> And lying there again. <laughs> Everything is so subjective, you know, where you, how you see things. It was wonderful. So I said, uh, that's a I said, that's a special chair, like for the policemen kind of helpers. Don't go up there, please. <laughs> Say whatever you want to whoever's right around here. We'll listen very happily. So what did a teacher like that inspire you to, in your way, in your practice, you know, change your life? You had already been a Buddhist meditation teacher and founder of a great center for so many years. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, I mean, I loved him, you know, so there was that. And he loved me, which was also amazing. But actually, there was a time when you were translating when we, we uh, organized this retreat for him. I mean, this was also like a... A miracle. He was there for a month, and you know, in the Catskills, um, and uh, somewhere in the. Uh, and by the way, there's this. Is this on print? This fabulous book, Natural Great Perfection, that Surya compiled of his his teachings, which is really, really wonderful. And uh, somewhere in there, uh, Kempo, as he was called, was giving a talk, and he said. Um, Something like, when I was in Tibet, before I had to escape, I was uh, living in a state where I was really honored. And, and, you know, I'd sit up on a high throne and I would teach, like, thousands. And um, uh, there was tremendous respect and, and regard. And then 
I had to escape, and the escape itself was really harrowing. I forget, they left with like 50 people and only five survived or some, some number like that. Mm-hmm. On foot. Yeah, and then he he's, the you know, a terrible ordeal. And then he said, and I ended up uh, living in Calcutta as a beggar on the streets. And those of you who either have seen that or, or can imagine it, you know, know that's quite a thing to say. And so he went on and his next sentence was, and I was very happy. <laughs> and my mind went tilt. <laughs> like, what do you mean you lost everything and you were very happy? Like, how does that compute? And obviously it wasn't happy, like happy-go-lucky or uh, removed from the knowledge of that journey out and how many people were suffering or suffering inside of Tibet. It wasn't the kind of oblivious happy that we can get into. And that was, you know, how I really saw him. It's like, what do you mean you were pretty happy? <laughs> and where does your happiness come from uh, compared to mine? <laughs> you know, and that, that was a very profound gift of his. Once I felt that uh, I had done something wrong or misrepresented him or not did a good job translating what he wanted to people, and I don't mean philosophy, I mean like just some details of getting something done. And I went with my tail between my legs and confessed and told him, and you know, because like you said, what is real love? And what we ever usually think about is we want people to love us or how much they love us or if we're okay or so. Maybe this was the Jeffrey side of me went to slinking over there and, and confessing and asking for his forgiveness. And he said, and he didn't even like enter into that discussion because it was really a non-happening and there was no problem except in my mind perhaps. He said, nothing is difficult. And, and he never talked about himself in this way or made any claims. Nothing is difficult for me. Have some tea. Nothing's difficult. Nothicult, nothing is difficult for me, he said. Like no problem. But it was the nothing. It was very impressive. It wasn't just no problem. It was like, just remember, nothing is, you know. I've been through all those difficulties. My joy, my contentment, my equanimity, my appreciation of life in the moment does not come from these momentary vacillations of little ups and downs on the, on the graph here. You know, I walked through the Himalayas and lost everybody and everything and been a beggar in Calcutta without a passport and status. Nothing is difficult for me. And this is not so much really about him that we're sharing, but about how we can learn where to look deeper rather than looking for what we seek in all the wrong places. Look deeper. Not just within ourselves, narcissistically, but look deeper. Mm-hmm. And, and find. Seekers must one day become finders. Could, do we have a mic for our sister here? She's asking, could we speak and how to train in that, which is really our interesting, important issue always and question, how? You know, as I heard that story that you just told so beautifully, Sharon, I, I couldn't help but feel, if I heard that too, I would say, how is that possible? that you could be here in Calcutta and, and be happy. 
so my question is, how does one begin to train in that so that those, as you just said, the oscillations of daily life don't consume you and your heart doesn't harden? And how do you train in that? Give me a tip, <laughs> a morsel I'm looking for, something. You know, because I just want to say one thing. The first thing is, if you were there and you heard that story, you would have seen it. Right in front of your eyes, what it feels like and what it is. And then you would know that it's real. And then it makes training or opening to that much more real for you. You know, when I hear these, um, the stories t today, and I, I have a sense of jealousy that you were with these people, that you felt that way, that unconditional love, that you, you saw it, it was real for you. And, and I, I have to say, I never felt that. You know, I never, it didn't even, like, I can't even imagine what that would be like. Don't spend any time there. <laughs> right, like inner critic. It's not useful. And, it, and, and it's not even real because I wouldn't wish what I went through <laughs> when my guru left his body. Well, Sharon's here, so I can't say it, but not even on my worst enemy would I wish that. If she wasn't here, I'd say, maybe I could. <laughs> you know, so that's, you know, it's not like that. You know, you, you have, we each, have our, we each get our teachings, you know, uh, our lives are our teachings. And, and it's, what happens to us is just what we need to happen. There's nothing, nothing that you can't, think like that. I mean, we do think like that, which is how we torture ourselves for no reason. But, um, I mean, I, in my opinion, I met Maharaji, I've met hundreds of incredible saints in my life. I'm the same schmuck I always was. And I, and I beat myself up for that too. So, you know, you know, it's, it's a big deal. <laughs> you know, so, uh, you know, the power of the loving heart that titles up there to speak to practices, you know, that I'm sure I know you know, that have helped open the heart, that have cultivated um, not armoring the heart um, to keep it from hardening. Um, can you speak to that at all? Yeah, and I think some of it is a um, is a question of well, it's like Krishna Das was just saying. It's almost like confidence in that such a thing is possible, and also desirable. A lot of people think that an open heart makes you weak, you know, or too vulnerable, or foolish, or or something like that. And to understand that it's its own kind of strength. It's not the same thing as like giving in all the time or, or just saying yes or uh, whatever it might be, that, that it's really a force. Um, so it's both those things, that some confidence that this could be possible, which sometimes we get from that reflection back toward us and sometimes we get from, from within and, and really understanding that, oh yeah, this is... This is something that is worth cultivating, you know, that it's not a mistake or going to leave me um, 
as this meek doormat or something like that. So um, I was just writing about this, this time when I was practicing in Burma in 1985 when I was doing intensive loving kindness practice. So that would be a kind of method that is uh, really geared toward uncovering the potential of our own heart. And um, usually I think when we think about loving kindness, we think about love, uh, we, we land it in the object, right? The person, the experience, the scene, whatever it is. And were that to fade or move away, it's like all love has gone. It's withdrawn from us. Rather than realizing someone or something may awaken it, but it's within us, right? It's a capacity inside of us. And uh, there was just this moment in Burma when I got that, you know, when I felt like, oh, this is what they mean, <laughs> you know, when they say it's, it's within us, it's a capacity inside of us, it's a potential inside of us. And according to the Buddhist teaching, that capacity, that potential is never, ever destroyed, whatever we may go through or... Uh, whatever might have happened historically in our lives or we may yet go through, it may be covered over and it may be hidden and it may be um, hard to trust, but it's there as a capacity, always. And so it's on that basis that we do whatever practice we're doing. Um, not because it's outside of us, but really because it's within us. And, and that, I think, is just very important. It's also the same mechanism in you that feels you have to do something to make it happen that's creating the jealousy and all that stuff in the first place. So, and that we're all like that. You know, we all think we have to make it happen because we're not, it's not enough, we're not enough. You know. um, it disqualifies you for being a human. <laughs> Questions? Anybody? Okay, so attachment to one you love is no longer near you. No longer what? Near you for whatever reason, oh. like a child. Uh -huh. This was asked of me, and I had no answer other than, well, you're in distress because you're attached and you love your child and she's no longer with you. And I'm trying to reconcile the peace. How do you find the peace for all that love that's gone? Because you referred to that a little bit. And I didn't have an answer. All I knew, all I did was I recognized it. Can you help me with that? Was I articulate enough for you? <laughs> what do you mean by gone? The well, the, no, well, not dead. The... No, just a way for the weak do to work. Okay. Yeah, nothing, ser nothing <laughs> serious. Nothing serious. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but is it so different, really? Well, I, I think there's a an immensity of feeling. Obviously, I think. I mean, some of it depends on how you use the word attachment. I think these days, certainly, and as far as I understand, and. Western psychology, it's used 
in a pretty positive sense, you know, like bonding and proper attachment relationships and things like that. I think in Buddhist teaching, it, it's more got a flavor of being in control, wanting to be, not really being in control, wanting to be in control, wanting to hold on, wanting to keep someone from changing. Um, and, and so it's not that it's considered bad or wrong or terrible estate, but it's a tremendous source of suffering because yes. we're not in control. And, and I said that she, I said, you know she's saved. And, and so it comes down to the control aspect of that's it. That's right, yeah. And it's very hard for us because um, it, it's hard to discern the difference between love and control, love and attachment, we would say. Yes. Uh, but there's a pretty big distinction. But they go to hand in hand as well. I mean, I think that's something as human beings we experience, but we can see that they're different. And one of the examples in the texts, in the Buddhist text, is a parent whose child is now an adult. And there's love and there's care and there's affection and there's wishing them perhaps to behave in a certain way. And there's the understanding you can't make it so, right? It's like you can't, would that we could, right? Get in someone else's brain and and like press the button and then they go this way instead of that way. But it doesn't happen with children. It doesn't happen with friends. It doesn't happen anywhere, you know, that we can decide how someone will live. And so it's not a rejection or coldness or withdrawal. It's, it's this huge space that's created by wisdom. Like that's how things are. And within that, there can be so much connection. Um, Without that, then something else is happening, and there's usually a lot of pain. Thank you. I think Buddha's greatest teaching, and I often hear myself saying this, is the middle way, and that applies to so much of our questions and things. Middle way meaning not too tight, not too loose, balance, which is harmonious, not too much and not too little, balancing greed and need. We all have need, but how much greed is required? So it's a little touchstone for me in many of my questions which come up in my own mind about where is the balance point or the middle way? Not that it has to be a narrow razor's edge down the middle on the 50-yard line only. The whole game plays on a whole 100-yards <laughs> field. But balancing flexibly, like riding a bicycle, it looks like you're staying still, but you're always balancing a little. So there's need and then there's greed. And if you're a parent, there's a need for security or knowing that they're okay. And then there's maybe a greed, not to judge it too much, but that's just simplifying for more. And there's never enough security when one is in that situation because of parental love and all. So maybe acceptance can go a long way to transforming that irritation of not knowing enough to be feel secure. When we talk in Buddhism about equanimity, we're talking about acceptance. It's a, a radical acceptance. And acceptance has its own transformative magic. It's not just cold detachment or indifference or complacency. It's like the grandparents are more detached or accepting of the kids than the parents because they've been through it because they're less responsible and have a, a more relaxed attitude. 
Of course, in the parenting phase, you need to be more responsible and guardian. But then the grandparents get the gravy because you can care and love so much and yet not be so attached to the outcome, which most religions talk about this. Do the best you can and not be overly attached to the outcome. Again, back to the middle way. Yes, care about the outcome, but not overly attached to it and always disappointed because it's never good enough. So just a thought. What would you say to somebody who feels overwhelmed by the many options of what to do with yourself tomorrow, next month, next year, um, who maybe spends a lot of time worrying about what's the right thing to do um, for fear of missing out on whatever they didn't choose to do? Get a job. Dharma. <laughs> what if you're a yoga teacher? Just kidding. Well, that's your job, yeah. <laughs> Just teasing. Come on, you guys. Yeah. You guys that have all the answers. So I have a friend um, named Linda Stone who I quote in one of my books, Real Happiness. She had this great phrase, uh, continuous partial attention, which... <laughs> she uh, describes as this kind of the sign of our times that we tend to pay continuous partial attention. So we feel very fragmented. And she lays that on the basis of our being afraid to miss anything, you know, like moment to moment. So you're checking email and you think, what about Twitter? And you go to Twitter and you think, what about Facebook? You know, and it's sort of like it's our environment now. And so... um, Sometimes in, in terms of a day, like, like what to do, I say, you know, at least sometimes try not to multitask, just unitask, like just get there to do something. And in terms of a bigger picture, I wouldn't worry about 10 years down the road. I'd worry about, or not even worry, I'd think about the next step. That's all. And the implications for that you'll deal with in the step after that. Uh, rather than trying to resolve it all at once, because that's our habit anyway. Not only are we fragmented, but we tend to have a tremendous uh, tendency toward projection. We're not just dealing with the physical pain that's happening right now. We're dealing with this physical pain plus all of the anticipated pain. What's it going to feel like next week? What's it going to feel like next month? What's it going to feel like next year? And we're trying to bear that all at once, and it's impossible. Um, or where you know we're consolidating in some way uh, and creating a, a solidity where it actually doesn't exist because everything's fluid. So don't worry about the rest of your life. I would say it's just like okay, next decision. That's enough. Something like that. Also, why don't you do what you want? No, oh, yeah. Huh? Do what you want. Finding out what you want is, is, is your path. It's your whole life. And you have to kind of jump in and, and find out what it is you want to do, what works for you. And the only way you find out is by, you know, if the water's too cold or too hot, is you jump in. So get, you know, engage 
with life. Don't sit around and wonder too much, you know. Just do something and see how it works for you. When I was, Maharaji, my, my guru was sending me back to America after two and a half years in India, walking around in a red dress with bare feet, stepping in cow poop. And he said, go back to New York. I said, uh, I looked at myself and I said, uh, I don't think this is going to work in New York City. <laughs> so the day to leave had arrived and I had to leave for the plane in Delhi. And I, I was completely flipped out. What am I going to do in America? You know, I, I, I was speaking like this only because I had been in India so much. I wanted to be Indian. And so, as I was talking, I would be talking like this. You know, I was completely Indianized in my own mind anyway, you know. <clears throat> and I, what am I going to do in the United States of America, right? So I'm sitting in front of them. And, you know, it's the usual chaos. Everybody's crying, laughing, jumping up and down. These fruits flying in all directions. And I'm thinking, I got to ask him what to do. And then the other part of me says, no, you have no faith, you miserable. Don't shut up and just do what you want. Just, what are you talking about? I have to ask him. I don't know what I'm going to do. Now. I told you to shut up. What am I this is right in front of him, you know. So finally I blurted out. Maharaji, how can I serve you in America? He looked like he bit a pickle. He made this face that was like, Ugh, you know? And he looks at me and says, if you ask about service, it's not service. Yeah, seva, you know, selfless service. If you're asking about it, it's not. He said, do what you want. Do what I want. I have been celibate for two and a half years. <laughs> I know what I want to do. <laughs> but then I thought, how is that going to be serving him? <laughs> and he looked at me and he cracked up. He laughed so hard. He went, ah! So, how will you serve me? <laughs> That's my final instructions from him. Do what you want. And it's, that's been the life-saving grace of my life. Because I, it, all of a sudden, it was up to me to find out what I wanted to do. And I did all kinds of weird shit, and I got myself in all kinds of trouble only to find that that wasn't what I really wanted, you know? And it, it just, it was, it, it was, he never told people what to do, except maybe go away, you know, that's his thing. You know? But he didn't tell you how to live your life, you know, very often. And, and it was very, he made us find what was right for us. You know, of course, underneath he's helping in, from the inside, but we had to kind of go through the stuff and find out what worked. And this is, look at this. This is my main squeeze. <laughs> right here. This is it. Uh, this is what I actually want to do. How the hell did I ever think that anything like this would ever happen? That I can actually do what I wanted to do? What makes me happy? Wow. But it wasn't easy. Ooh. 
It wasn't easy. But it's okay now. So you have to go through that period. That's part of, that's, that's the way it is. All of us. But you only, the only way you know is if you get in there and start going for it. Like, you know, somebody just asked me before about the story I told when I was in the, in the jungle in India with this very old Baba. He was 163 years old, 20, more than 20 years ago. He's still alive. And one day he kind of looked at me like, ah. and he said, you have to develop willpower. And I thought to myself, willpower? What do I need that for? And then he went, oh. and he did something and he showed me, he showed me what he was seeing in me, in me, right? And I went, oh, wow. And I saw that I was, I, had sh- I was putting shackles around my own ankles. I was crippling myself every step of the way in life. I wasn't going after what I wanted. And I saw there wasn't like spiritual life and worldly life. It's just my miserable life, you know. And I was, I was not living. I was avoiding situations and I wasn't really, you know, being engaging in life. And it was an incredible moment for me it really it was an incredible moment it really changed a lot for me over time i saw that willpower in in hindi it's icha shakti icha means desire shakti is power the power to manifest your desires there was some part of me that thought like oh no 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 i don't really need that i don't want that i mean but it was just fear and neurosis and all that stuff. It wasn't allowing me to go after the stuff and be who I wanted to be, you know? I had to overcome that. I'm still working on it, but that was the process. So, good luck. (laughs) Questions? Yes, over here. I have a question. So I've been meditating for years and years and years, and I find that when I'm in such um, loving energy, and my heart, my heart's open a lot, but in places like this, this rage and this pain comes in, that's really hard. It's not hard to be with, because I can be with it. I'm not even clear what my question is. It's when I throw myself into life with this pain and talk to others about it, or talk to the person who, who is involved with it. I don't get heard. And so I, I, I go into this rage and this pain and I open my heart and I feel all this love and I can hardly bear it. So I want you to comment on that. <laughs> Thank you so much. What is this rage and pain you're referring to like you're assuming that we are aware of what you're talking about like you know what is this rage and pain that you're so enraged and pained about um not being heard there is a misunderstanding with a very good friend well men don't listen that's like the first noble truth and and when we do listen we don't understand anyway even if they do they don't understand they don't understand it doesn't matter (laughs) other 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 doesn't listen other 
because you set up as other, and you know it's hard to bridge the gap. But, what, but also, why, why does that bother you so much? You need them to listen that much. Yeah. Why does that? I mean, we all do, but I wonder. I look into this. Why does it bother me so much that those goddamn, you know, mofos well. don't listen? <laughs> Namaste, mofo. <laughs> Why does it bother me so much? It, what do I need from them with my offering of, of loving communication that I'm so needy to get back the way I want it? So well, I'm saying, what, what is pain and enraging you so much? Do you, well, anger coming from? I, I think I, I heard a voice saying, I hear you coming from the love, that this is all that's needed, which opened my heart more, but brought the rage out and the pain even deeper. The two were... So are so hand in hand. Yes. So now we also have entering into it the higher power, just to use a word you said you heard the voice, so that maybe you could, you know keep working with keep working hearing that too, not just the other yes. whatever that is well, that, about that not all listening or you don't matter, right? I don't hear you or don't right. talk. That's all stuff from the past also, that I, I don't need to get yeah. into. So that. like he said before, it's not useful to dwell in that sort of Identity. I mean, it's easier said than done, but right. you could just also notice there's also the other voice or voices or, you know, I mean, just to use some words that we're talking about here, because you haven't talked much, so I don't know what your frame of reference is. He would say, so that's my guru's voice reminding me that he loves you, even if, you know, I hear you, I li I'm listening, right. I hear you, I love you, even if so-and-so, he, she, or it. It's not just people that don't listen. You know, the pets don't listen. The birds don't listen. The environment don't listen. I understand. Yes. Yeah. And then, of course, there's the whole you know issue, if it is an issue for you, about anger and rage. You mentioned rage, not just anger, which is just an emotion, but rage. So there's obviously you know something to it's, it's feel something into and and, and right. you know, Th That's about clarify. hearing myself, hearing my own language standing up for myself more. I think that's what that's about. Not doing what I n know I need to do. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. So good luck with that. Thank that's you. a deep question and painful. Um, my question is about the nap that we are inviting the inner critic to take. Is that an internal nap? <laughs> an eternal nap. <laughs> eternal nap. Uh, I doubt it. <laughs> so I mean, there's a, you know, there's meant to be something a little cuddly about that image, and that's not like annihilation, <laughs> you know. So the, I guess the next question is: Is there, given that we have it, is there a, a healthy state that it could exist in? This inner critic, like, what are the qualities like if it were in a healthy place? Well, I think that uh, it, the healthy place is our relationship to it. That's the that's the transformative arena, you know. So, uh, from the point of view of mindfulness, we'd say we tend to different extreme reactions. One is we hear that voice, and we say, "You're right." You're totally right. Like, we believe it. We incorporate it. It guides our actions. No, I can't do anything, so I won't try. You know, or whatever it might be. So it's really defining us because we're, we're so lost in it. The other reaction is really disliking it and hating it and fearing it and trying to make it go away and, 
and we get, you know, so tense and so rigid and so upset. So those are two extremes. And, and we say mindfulness kind of like slices right down the middle so that we, we can see what's happening. We're neither falling into it nor are we fighting it. And within that space, there's a kind of, there's space. Um, and there's also uh, kindness. There's even a kind of tenderness. Like, I often tell the story about um, years ago, I went to uh, sit. A friend of ours had rented a house on the Cape for several of us to do a retreat in. So when I went into the room, that had been set aside for me. So someone had left a cartoon on the desk from the Peanuts comic strip. And in the first frame of the cartoon, uh, Lucy is talking to Charlie Brown, and she says, you know, Charlie Brown, what your problem is, the problem with you is that you're you. (laughs) In the second frame of the cartoon, poor Charlie Brown says, well, what in the world am I supposed to do about that? And then in the third frame, Lucy being Lucy says, I don't pretend to be able to give advice. I merely point out the problem. (laughs) And this was a retreat, right? So whenever I was doing walking meditation by that desk, I would find my eye falling right on that line. The problem with you is that you're you. Because that Lucy dominant voice had been so strong in my earlier life. And so I've also... uh, spend a lot of time, there. there's so many ways of practicing mindfulness, and one way, just one school, um, uses this tool called mental noting, where you, <coughs> like if you're with the breath, you quietly, silently, you know, say, in, out, and then you, if the word comes easily, you place a label on your predominant experience, so it might be like in, out, joy, sorrow, sleepiness, whatever, so... I had been highly trained in that, so I I felt like seeing that cartoon gave me a new set of mental notes, one of which was, hi, Lucy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, so, like, for example, something great would happen for me, and the very next thought in my head would be, it's never going to happen again. I'd say, hi, Lucy. (laughs) And my favorite form of it was, chill out, Lucy. (laughs) You know, not like, you're right, Lucy, you're always right, And also not, oh, my God, Lucy's still here. You know, I've been meditating for two years, four years, eight years, 20 years, 30 years, 40 years, 44 years. You know, it's like, chill out, Lucy. So there's a lot of freedom there, even if Lucy keeps visiting. Thank you. That's really helpful. On the journey to enlightenment, how do you know you're making progress? <laughs> I mean, you, you kind of want to know, you know, there's a sign that says, oh, you got a long way to go. Uh, you're getting close. Uh, you took a wrong turn. Go back and... You ask your mate. Not everybody has a guru, which is supposed to be a clear mirror to reflect you, but, you, you know, an intimate, there's nowhere to hide from an intimate. That's one way. Of course, mentors and teachers is another way. There's no, ex- a, a, another, a third is pillar, p- 
for this, there's no substitute for really candid, honest introspection slash evaluation, whatever you want to say, not being overly judgment, judgmental, but self-deception is one of the biggest poisons or potholes or sidetracks in the path. So a few thoughts. If you find yourself asking that question less than you used to, you're making progress. Because it's the evaluative mind that just won't go away, keeps evaluating. And that's the whole thing. That's the problem, so to speak. I mean, the fact that we believe all that stuff. And I've found that this kind of, the results of practice kind of are mostly off the radars, not on a lot of the time. You know? So I mope around less than I used to. It's just actually true. I can't believe it. Because I, you know, I love moping. I noticed that you've made a lot of progress, Krishnadas, not to be judgmental. Before you were talking about how you were the same schmuck or schnook or schlemiel or whatever word you used, to, in, you know, Sanskrit schmuck, word, as you, before. But obviously you're wearing it a lot more lightly, which we all love and are so happy for you for. And for example, when that tree fell on your house <laughs> and landed right next to you, it you told no, me... It didn't land next to me. Let's get the story You were sitting right. and doing chanting at the puja table. I just said the first line. It was in Hurricane Sandy, right? The winds just went from like an, an, a reasonable 70 miles an hour to like 120 miles an hour. And I thought, I'm going to go do puja and sing some chalices. So I sat down at the puja. And I went, Sri Guru Charana Sarojaraja, boom! <laughs> and I looked around, I didn't see anything. What was that? So I got up, I looked out the window, I looked over there, I went to the living room. I didn't see anything. I walked back towards the, where I sit, and I happened to look in my bedroom, and it was like a waterfall coming in through the bedroom, right? And the tree had fallen. If it had gone another three feet, it would have pushed my head down into my chest. It was right above my head, the tree. But a beam that Bub had seen when we were rebuilding the, the bathroom, he had seen that these that termites had eaten through the, the uh, support beams. So they replaced them and built them up really strong. That beam stopped the tree. And that tree would have come right down on my head. And... From where I was standing, if I, when I looked out the back window, you could see that the branches hanging out over the building. So it was like a slice right in. I went, wow. <laughs> <laughs> That's progress. And I was, wow. <laughs> 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 it was really something. But if you find yourself, you know, even engaging in that whole question less, if you look back at your life, you might notice that you do that less now. Then you can, that's kind of how you see. There's a line, and this is in, uh, I think it's Chinese Buddhism, Sam, that says, if you can, talking about the master, if if you can see which way the wind is blowing from, from noticing which way the grass bends, you can appreciate his teaching 
You can't see these things directly because that part of you is just not there anymore. It's not functioning the same way all the time. I'm getting older and I notice it less, but I don't know if it's like making progress before I'm getting older. Nah, it's just dementia. I know. It takes one to know one. <laughs> yeah. um, I don't have a question, but I have a, I know a great anecdote, and I nev didn't know what it uh, was an example of until you talked about beginner's mind, um, about openness and freshness. So I'll tell the anecdote, but I have to stand up because I'm a little bit of a ham. So, <laughs> there's a, um, it's a first grade class, and there's some free time, and the teacher hands out crayons and tells the kids, draw whatever you want. So, they're drawing whatever they want, and the teacher notices one girl who's drawing very intently. So, she goes over and she says, Mary, like, what is it that you're drawing? Mary says, I'm drawing a picture of God. The teacher, who's an adult, says, like, well, nobody knows what God looks like. And Mary looks at her and says, they will in a minute. close to the time when we have to leave. So anybody have any question that's very pressing that you want to ask? We can... hmm? Sing. We're going to do that. <laughs> Calm My yourself. popular request, we're going to sing. But, you know, sometimes somebody has something they want to say that's important. I ask. Thank you. Um, I guess I'm, I've been thinking a lot about karma these days. And um, one thing that I'm wondering is, as we go through lifetime of a lifetime of a lifetime of a lifetime of a lifetime in the path, the ripening of positive or negative karma, what's the sort of, I, I don't know if there's an answer to that, but is today, our, our life today is a result of the accumulated karma that we've built, relative karma we've built in, uh, in, in, in past, um, whether positive, both positive and negative. So, you know, when looking at sickness, for example, I tend to look at it as, you know, a, a way to like, you know, the elimination of negative karma accumulated in the past and positive things as, you know, merits and, you know, things that have accumulated in, in the past as well. Um, how long does it take for karma to ripen? Rip, ripen? You say ripen? Is it like, is there some karma that takes, you know, and it's immediate karma, right? You slap someone, you get slapped back. Um, but there's other karma that, you know, can take, you know, some more time and then maybe more, you know, future lives, whatever. But I mean, what's, is there like a rule of thumb? Like, how does that work? <laughs> There's all kinds of karmas, and there's all kinds of ripenings, and there's individual karma, and group karma, and species karma. 
and local karma and global, and there's good, bad, and different, you know. But it's sort of like karma really means conditioning or habituation, causation. So it's like habit. How long does it take a habit to form? So it depends on many conditions. So I think this may not be that useful to intellectualize too much about karma. It's hard to understand, except that like reproduces like, but you should check it out and see if this is not the case. So that you can have your hand on the steering wheel of your life, not be driving with your hands on the rearview mirror, wondering why you have all these, quote, accidents. Because causation and, you know, like you said, health has to do with how you live and lived and your parents and the past lives or whatever you believe in, at least your other people's lives, right? And your genes and your body. So causation and karma is not ripening now and ripening later. But just look into what's happening and try to see what the causes and effects are, what makes you sick and healthy, what's wholesome and unwholesome, what's helpful and unhelpful, and focusing on what you want and need to do, really. Focusing on that and what's helpful and harmful to that. So all of Buddhist ethics, good and bad, virtue vice, is about what's conducive to the good and the true and the beautiful and enlightenment and the opposite of harming. So we look at our actions, our thoughts, words, and deeds in that light, what's conducive to that or harmful to that. Because it's ripening constantly. Each moment leads to the next moment, just like habit. Every time a synapse sparks and is crossing to the next synapse, brain science, basic, it's creating a new pathway, which is the beginning of conditioning, of karma, of causation. But that can be reconditioned. That's the good news. And even deconditioned. Not just make new ruts, but find freedom, which is a quantum leap, not just a little incremental improvement but an exponential quantum leap. We're getting toward the end of our time, so we're going to go out singing. <laughs> By popular demand. Calling out to hungry hearts Everywhere through endless time You who wander, you who thirst I offer you this body mind Calling out to hungry spirits Everywhere through endless time Calling out to hungry hearts all the lost and the left behind Gather round, share this meal Your joy and your song, I make it mine Calling out to hungry spirits 
Mangalamurti Martanam 
some footprints for us to follow. So in the same way that they wish for us, we wish that all beings everywhere, all of us, be safe, be happy, that all of us have good health and enough to eat. And may we all live in peace and that ease of heart at ease of heart with whatever comes to us in life. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. What would you like to get off your chest right now? Are you feeling lonely, unappreciated, or misunderstood? When you keep these feelings bottled up, they can affect you negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and work through whatever is weighing you down. It's a great way to increase your self-awareness, change negative thought patterns, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Be Here Now today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Be Here Now.